Father, I thank you for this time together. I thank you for Richfield Bible Church, Lord. I thank you uh, for the work that you're clearly, evidently doing here. Um, Lord, it is a joy to be with these brothers and sisters today. I pray now that as we uh, transition into a time spent in your word, Lord, um, that you would convict us, that you would instruct us, that you would encourage us. Uh, Lord, would you cause joy and praise to open our hearts in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in Psalm chapter 11 today. You can turn there with me. Um, Before we jump in to the chapter, I want to just spend some time, just a brief amount of time, talking about the context of the Psalms, just because we're jumping into the book just for the day. So I want to remind you of just a couple things. First, I want to remind you what the Psalms are. Um, The book of uh, Psalms was essentially the Jewish nation's songbook. So these were songs they sang in everyday life as they experienced everyday life. So as they struggled and experienced trials, they sang these songs. As they experienced joy and love and hope, they sang these songs. They sang them at home. They sang them at work. uh, They sang them in the temple. And so the Psalms are basically a collection of poetry set to music that uh, capture the comprehensive human experience really well. And so they shape our minds and emotions in that they not only teach our minds truth, but they also awaken uh, emotions that fit the truth. And so some of the emotions that the Psalms exhibit are love, loneliness, awe, sorrow, regret, discouragement, delight, anger, grief, desire, gratitude, pain, confidence, brokenheartedness, and exaltation, and so on and so forth. And that's one of the reasons why the Psalms are just so relevant for us today because we experience all of these things in our everyday lives as well. But they're also more than just songs. Uh, that shape our minds and emotions. They're more than just songs that teach us how to live in obedience to God. They also fit into the story of salvation and that they point forward to Israel's great hope that though humanity is undercursed from the fall, there would be a coming Messiah King who would save his people from their sins. And so if we want to concisely summarize the Psalms, we could say this. The Psalms are the songs of God's people as they wait in a broken world for God's chosen king to come and save them. That's what the Psalms are. Secondly, I want to remind you that there's a structure to the Psalms. So the book of Psalms can be referred to as the Psalter, and the Psalter is organized into five different books. And I don't have a lot of time to to talk about that today, uh, but each book has a roughly defined focus. And where we're at today in in the first book, Psalm 1 through 41, um, is comprised mostly of of songs of David's confidence in the Lord, despite the, the circumstances that he's experiencing and the distress he's experiencing. Now, there's much more that can be said about the Psalms, um, but hopefully that serves as just a helpful, brief reminder for you guys as we get into our text for this morning. <clears throat> so I'm going to read Psalm 11 for us. I'll be reading from the ESV, and you can follow along with me, starting in verse 1. It says, David, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. 
He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face, says the word of the Lord. I like to boil down a passage into a main idea, so I'm going to offer a main idea of this text to you this morning. Here's what I think the main idea is. True refuge is found only in the Lord, so take refuge in him because you aren't going to find it elsewhere. True refuge is found only in the Lord, so take refuge in him because you aren't going to find it elsewhere. There are two major sections in this text that are going to help us to see this this morning. First, we're going to see David's circumstances in verses 1 through 3 which is to say what it is that he's facing. And second, we're going to see David's confidence in verses 4 through the end, which is to say why it is that he can say in verse 1, in the Lord I take refuge. So let's begin in verse 1. We see David's opening phrase here, in the Lord I take refuge. Now the word refuge essentially means that which provides safety or security from whatever threatens us. And so here David is stating that he finds refuge, he finds that in the Lord. Now the questions that immediately came to my mind when I first read this were, one, why does he lead with that statement? And two, who or what did he need refuge from? And what we're going to see in the next few verses lays out the context for us and helps us to answer these questions. So what we read of again in verses 1 through 3 are the circumstances that David finds himself in. So David's circumstances. When we outline verses 1 through 3, we can see that there are three things that David is facing. One of the problems that David is facing is found in verse 2. David's being told to flee in verse 1 because verse 2 tells us, For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. So the first problem David is facing that I want to highlight, is the threat of wicked enemies. The threat of wicked enemies. Now, we don't know exactly who he's referring to here when he says the wicked. We could make some speculation, though. Perhaps he's referring to his ordeal with Saul that we read of in in, uh, 1 Samuel 19. Or maybe he's referring to his son Absalom's rebellion that we read of in uh, 2 Samuel 14 and 15. Or perhaps, uh, maybe even more broadly speaking, there's just a, a foreign power after him. We don't know for sure who the enemy he's talking about is here. But the idea we get from this verse is that the enemies were armed and ready to attack at any moment from the shadows. And so, I mean, the the picture painted here is a pretty hopeless and indefensible one. We also come to understand from this verse that David is the object of the attack because he is upright in heart. Now, that word upright uh, there literally means straight, like straight as an arrow, which is to say that those who were not upright or straight were crooked. They lived crooked lives, not upright lives. They lived lives of rebellion. And so, of course, they wanted to attack those who did live upright lives, who, who trusted in and served the Lord. And so you can, you can start to feel the weight of David's circumstances here. There's a hostile enemy after him, ready to attack him at any time. The second problem David faces is found in verse 3. We read that he faces the threat of destroyed foundations. Destroyed foundations. Here we read this uh, pessimistic question from David's friends, or maybe uh, better put, so-called friends. They ask, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? In other words, they're essentially asking, when godlessness and wickedness and lawlessness pervades a society, destroying every foundation for righteousness and and truth and justice, what can the upright do? And the answer, as friends give, is found back in verse 1, 
And this is where we also see the third problem that uh, David faces, which is bad counsel. Bad counsel. So what are the upright to do when they face the attack of an enemy? What are they to do when it seems like the very foundations of society are crumbling around them? Well, the advice his friends give him in verse 1 is to flee like a bird to your mountain. In other words, they're basically saying, make a run for it. Like, it's over. You need to run to where you think it's safe to hide. And that sounds good on face value, right? You've got a problem. So run from it and run to your definition of safety and security. Now, again, that may sound good, but it's a dangerous temptation to try and escape all of life's problems and do it in a way that you think is best apart from God. And I realize that David is actually facing an attack here by enemies with bows, which I'm guessing none of us face. Though, if you're here in Richfield, Minnesota, and someone's after you with a bow and arrow, I'm intrigued. I want to talk to you after the service. We'll talk after the service. But, but we can expand this application uh, to the problems we face in our lives as well. There can be a real temptation when you're facing a, a problem or a trial in your life to just flee, to not face reality, to run to something that you think will keep you secure and safe when in all reality it won't at all. There can be a real temptation when it feels as though the societal foundations are crumbling to just want to avoid it all and just flee, just to just say, well, it's all over. There's no hope. But that's a dangerous temptation that we must resist. And so I'm thankful for David's response. Look back up in verse 1. David is just flabbergasted by this advice from his friends. He asks out of his surprise at their advice, how can you say to my soul? So he's essentially saying, this is my translation, you're my friend, you're supposed to give me good advice. We're, we're facing some threats and some problems, and your reflex, your reactionary advice is to tell me to flee, to just not face reality, and to flee like a bird to a mountain? He's just astonished at this counsel. You see, his friends have been focusing on the trouble, and therefore they've arrived at the wrong conclusion, but that's not what we see David does. His focus is on the Lord, and he views his circumstances through that lens. In fact, this focus or emphasis can even be seen in this sentence structure in the Hebrew. As one commentator helpfully pointed out, in Hebrew, the normal construction would be like English, such as, I have taken refuge in the Lord. We would see the sentence construction of subject, verb, object. But in the Hebrew, a way of expressing something emphatically is to put the object first. So what we see here is just that. It's literally object, subject, verb. In the Lord, object, I, subject, have taken refuge, verb. And so this just reinforces an emphatic focus on the Lord first. So when they're asking him to flee or telling him that, he's looking through that lens and saying, no, 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 I take refuge in the Lord. And he gives several reasons for his confidence, which we'll get into in just a moment. But there are two things I want to note that hit me while reading these verses. First is the importance of having wise friends. And uh, we see somewhat of the opposite of that here with David's friends. When, when this trial comes up, their reflex is to just tell him to, to flee, to not face reality. And there's something to be said about them looking after his safety and, and wanting to help him preserve his life. But when push comes to shove, that's just not enough. It's not actually helpful. What is helpful is to have friends who are going to point you to God 
and refuge in him in the midst of life's trials. And the reality is that we need this because we all live in this fallen world where we're going to inevitably experience pain and suffering and trial and so on. So if we can broaden the application for a moment, it's best to have good friends who are going to point you to God when you're facing strife in your family, when you're facing difficulties at work, when you've experienced loss, when you're experiencing loneliness and anxiety, as you're experiencing chronic pain, and so on and so forth. And these are all just general examples, but you get the point. It's good to have wise Christian friends who point you to the Lord in your strife and hardships and attacks and so on. The second thing that hit me, and I want to note here, is that it's good to develop the discipline of discernment so that when you do face unwise counsel, you can call it out like David does here. And one of the ways you can grow in discernment best is to read your Bible, to grow in your knowledge of the words, that when counsel comes your way that doesn't align with Scripture, you can say, no, I'm not going to do that, and I don't think you should do that either. To be like David, who says in the midst of bad counsel, no, it's in the Lord that I take refuge. So those are just two things that hit me while reading this text I thought might be helpful to you. But I want to get back to that phrase and begin to answer the question, where does this confidence come from? In other words, what, what reasons does David have for confidently taking refuge in the Lord? Well, he gives several reasons in the remaining verses. I want to highlight five reasons in the remaining verses of our passage this morning. And we'll see the first one in verse 4. Here we see that David takes refuge in the God who reigns. Takes refuge in the God who reigns reigns. Look at the first part of verse 4 with me. It reads, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. So here we get this picture of authority. We get this picture of kingship. And at first glance, it's possible to look at these verses and think David is describing a God who's just distant and unaware. He's just in a, a temple somewhere far away and kind of uninvolved. But that's actually not David's point at all. David's point is actually that God is currently reigning over all things. And we not only see that here, we see it in other uh, places in the Psalms as well. Remember in Psalm 2, when the psalmist paints the picture of the nations raging and the peoples plotting in vain, the psalmist writes, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then he shows us God's response to this. You remember, he says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. I mean, what a what a powerful picture, right? What's the response to the kings of the earth setting themselves against the Lord and his anointed? All this earthly power and authority that would surely terrify any human individual, any human institution. Well, it doesn't terrify the one who sits in heaven. In fact, he laughs, right? He is on the throne. He is reigning over all things, which includes the kings who set themselves against him. We see this in Psalm 47, 8 which reads, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. We see it in Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. We see it elsewhere too. Isaiah 40 tells us, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. David knows his God is exalted above all others. His dwelling place is in the heavens. His throne is established. He does as he pleases. His plans 
are never, will never be thwarted. No one can come against him. No one can rule over him. He rules over all. And so it's no wonder why David, knowing these things, responds the way he does. When his friends give him bad advice, he says, you want me to flee to a mountain for refuge? Do you know who my God is? He created all. He, he rules over all, including society, including all of my enemies. He's king over all. No mountain can give me refuge like that. It's David's response. David trusts in the fact that his God is over all. No one can thwart his rule. No one can cause his throne to fall. No one can even claim his authority. In fact, do you remember in the New Testament, John 19, Jesus' interaction with Pilate. Jesus has been brought to Pilate to either be released or crucified. And Pilate says, do you not know that I have authority to release you or to crucify you? What was Jesus' response to that claim of authority? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. That's what David is showing here. His God reigns over all. No one has the upper hand on him. Friends, I pray that that would bring you tremendous comfort this morning, that whatever you're facing, your king is on the throne. He is reigning over all things, and he will be forever. Secondly, David takes refuge in the God who sees. We see this in the second half of verse 4. just simply says, his eyes see. So what's David's point in this? What does he mean by that? David's point is to show that God sees everything. Therefore, he knows everything. He's not a God who's distant and unaware. It's the polar opposite. He knows everything. He knows what's going on in the world. He knows what's going on in your life better than you do. He sees it all. He sees your struggle. He sees your trials. He sees those who bring your struggles against you. David knows that his God sees all and is omniscient. And therefore, he takes refuge in him. Thirdly, David takes refuge in the God who tests. David takes refuge in the God who tests. The second phrase in in verse 4 that says, his eyelids test the children of man intensifies the claim that God sees. I think what he's trying to do here is to paint a picture of God paying close attention. So it's like when we squint or we kind of peer to examine something and you can see, we can see our eyelids better, right? Um, God is not just looking, but he's examining closely. He's examining what's going on in our hearts. He's paying close and careful attention. And this idea of testing is reinforced in the next verse when he says, the Lord tests the righteous. In other words, he's interested in how the righteous or the upright will respond to trials and difficulties. Will their response be faith or will it be despair? Now again, he already knows what the response of the righteous will be, right? We, we just talked about how he sees all, he knows all. But in a way, in doing this testing, what he's doing is revealing our own hearts to us, which is what we see with David's situation here. The, the foundations are crumbling. He's the object of the enemy's attack. And in a sense, God is testing him. Will he respond in faith? Now, this doesn't mean that God is just carelessly playing with the details of our life, like a... Like, uh, cruel puppet master or something like that and and throwing things out and being like, I wonder how he's going to respond to this one. That's not what this means at all. And face value, it can look that way. It might beg the question, why would a good God test us? But I think Peter actually gives us a good answer to this. In 1 Peter 1, 6 through 8, Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, 
you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, there's no way to actually fake your faith. If it's not genuine, you will not respond to life's trials with faith. You can, you can put on a facade for your whole life, but in the end, he will say to those who faked it, I never knew you. But there's beauty in the fact that the genuineness of our faith is tested, even when you have to face grievous trials. Why? Because according to Peter, it is sanctifying you, and it will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. In other words, brothers and sisters, your trials are not meaningless. You may never know on this side of eternity why you're called to endure the trials that you're called to endure. But you can know that ultimately enduring them is for your good and that you are not without a refuge to run to. In God's infinite wisdom, he allows suffering, but that doesn't mean he doesn't care. Remember, he sees it all. Your struggle with chronic pain, he sees it. Your unfair treatment at work, he sees it. Your crippling anxiety, he sees it. Your financial struggles, he sees it. Your family strife, he sees it. Your battle with infertility, he sees it. He sees it all. He knows it better than you do. He cares about it all. It's not meaningless. In fact, this is comforting. David writes in Psalm 56, verse 8, that he bottles those tears. He keeps count of your tossings, your, your restless nights, and he writes them down in his book. It's a tremendous comfort, a tremendous comfort that the God who reigns sees it all and that his testing is for our good. Fourth, David takes refuge in the God who judges. David takes refuge in the God who judges. Look at the second half of verse 5. It says, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. So this is strong language. right? David is, in a sense, calling down God's judgment upon the wicked here. He's taking refuge in the fact that, that God hates those who love violence, those who passionately plot against him and the upright, those who willfully do that and continually live in this sinful way. Now, why is this? Why, why does it say that God hates the wicked? Well, verse 7 tells us, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. So you can kind of see the logic there, right? A, a God who is righteous and loves righteousness cannot simultaneously hate wickedness. In fact, a God who is righteous and loves righteousness necessitates a hatred for wickedness. He is holy. He is righteous. He has a standard, and therefore, he will indeed execute justice. Now, perhaps you've caught on to a logical progression in this psalm. We see that God, has, God reigns over all things, but he doesn't do it as a distant, unaware king. He sees and examines, but he doesn't see and examine while being unable to act. We can be rest assured, like David, that he will bring justice. And that he not only sees the struggles of the upright, he sees the corruption of the wicked. And we may not see justice executed uh, on this side of eternity, where we've seen injustice or experienced injustice but it certainly will be executed one day, and it will be terrifying for the wicked. The author of Hebrews reminds us that it is a, 
a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, of the living God. It's Hebrews 10:31. But the Lord exercising judgment isn't just shown in his pouring out of his wrath on the wicked. It's also shown in the blessing of his people. This leads to our final point for this morning. David takes refuge in a God who saves. David takes refuge in a God who saves. Look at the last part of verse 7. It says, the upright shall behold his face. Isn't that incredible? The righteous, the upright shall behold his face. One of the richest blessings we could ever receive. And now again, I want to be clear that the judgment of the wicked and the salvation of the righteous are not two separate realities. The Bible shows us that salvation happens through judgment. Right, friends, the the Bible tells us that we are all wicked, that we all deserve condemnation. And so how is it that some will behold the face of God? How is it that that righteousness is attained by those who cannot attain it on their own? And the answer is Jesus Christ. The wrath we rightly deserved for our rebellion against God was taken upon Jesus at the cross. For those who are in Christ, we are recipients of this great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5 sums this up well. Paul writes, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's how some behold his face. Those in Christ have been credited with his righteousness. And so judgment happens, but the verdict for those in Christ is not guilty. And if you're in this room right now, and that's not you, you are not in Christ, I have some good news for you. He offers you forgiveness for your sins and newness of life right now. It is by grace through faith. You too can enter into this reality. You too can one day behold his face. This gift is free, but it demands a response. Will you turn away from your sin, from wickedness, and turn to Jesus Christ in faith? Friend, if that's you, I pray that today would be the day that you come to faith in him and that you would find your refuge in him alone like David. He is a God who judges the wicked. Oh, but he is a God who saves. And friends, isn't that good news? Isn't all this good news? Why flee to a mountain in the midst of life's difficult trials when instead God beckons you to run to a hill? Where on top of that hill there stood a cross with a man hung out on it who shed his blood for your sins that you might be credited with his righteousness and one day enter into eternity with him. If you're going to run somewhere, run there. Run there. Hold on to the unshakable promise that the upright shall behold his face. Now in one sense we experience that as Christians now as we read scripture With the help of the Spirit, we understand something of God and his glory. But friends, that doesn't even compare to the day when we will actually stand before Jesus and see him in his glory and and be like him. That's what John writes about in 1 John 3, 2. He tells us, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. What a day that will be, friends. No, no more enemies. No more chance of destroyed foundations. No more pain. Just an eternity spent with our Lord. Where there is fullness of joy and, and pleasures forevermore. But that day is not quite 
here. So where do we find refuge when all of life seems to be crumbling around us? Where do we find refuge in our pain when our friends tell us to find it elsewhere? Well, like David, we find refuge in the God who reigns, who sees, who tests, who judges, and who saves. True refuge can only be found in him. In this world, there are a million other places, a million other places that will offer you false refuge. And don't fall into those traps. Financial security will not bring you refuge. Living in a certain area will not bring you refuge. Alcohol and substances are not going to bring you refuge. Entertainment will not bring you refuge. And so on and so forth. Refuge is found in God and God alone. So run to him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you that we can find refuge in you, the God who reigns, who sees, who tests, who judges and saves. Oh, Lord, would you help us to meditate on these truths? Lord, would they cause us great joy and and praise this morning? And Lord, in the midst of any circumstances we find ourselves in right now, would this cause us to, to trust in you more? Would we find a true refuge and strengthen you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.